Well, if you brought with you this morning a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 14 to 18. If you did not bring one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home or with you, we would love for you to take that home as a gift. We think it's uh, critically important for us as we live in his world uh, to be able to read uh, his word. Uh, it's, a, it's a guide, it's a direction to us. And so we would love for you, if you don't have one, just to take that home with you. Um, it is a, is a, a sincere joy. What a, what a privilege it's been all uh, three services this morning just to, um, just to sing to the Lord with you this morning. So what a, what a gift. If you would, uh, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word and as we um, Lord, prepare to read it and to hear from you, we believe that's exactly what we're doing, um, is that we want to hear from you. God, we confess this is your world. And we live in it. And we want to know how best to live as men and women in your world. I pray that you would give us grace, grace upon grace that we read about here, to be able to believe what we read is true, to understand it, to apply it to our life. Would you give us courage? And I pray, Father, that even though these words, these applications are not written specifically in this text, I pray, God, that you would use this text to contribute to people believing in Jesus Christ. That you would use this text to contribute, to inspire us to live a life of worship. And Father, that you would use this text this morning to incline our heart, to inspire us with the reality that there's so many people all around us and around the world that have never heard what we get to hear routinely, and that is the gospel. And so I pray that you would use this, Father, just to light a fire in our heart to be able to talk more about Jesus with people who we know and people that we don't. So we look to you. Would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So about four years ago, my family, uh, we were uh, down in Georgia on vacation and we decided to go caving, okay? Now, the Frost family is not a caving family, uh, although we have done it once, uh, now twice, right? But my wife's brother, um, his name is Golden, uh, uh, Golden was uh, and is a sort of um, a guide for outdoor adventure uh, sorts of things, kayaking and things. And he just started picking up caving. Now, he'd only done it a few times, and he said, but I can guide us. And so we said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And so he came equipped for our whole family with hard hats and the headlamps and all this. And so we're traipsing around through the woods in Georgia. It's about 95 degrees, burning up, and he's promising it's going to be nice and cool down there. And that, that, was, that was true. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, there in the woods, we come across this hole, okay? And uh, and so he said, this is, this is where we go. So we all got a group picture, and then we started to, to, to sort of drop down into, um, into this hole. And what was interesting is after slipping through this first initial hole that was sort of the, sort of the bridge between darkness and light, right, um, is that we climbed and slid uh, down, uh, downward um, through caverns and tight crevices for about two and a half hours, okay, uh, down, down in this cave. And it really was remarkable because you would go from these enormous, um, almost rooms, there'd be 15 feet tall, uh, just, a, just a big open space. You could stand up, you could walk around. And then all of a sudden, the next place you have to go was this little crevice and you have to slide through and it was muddy and, and, then, and, and then it dropped down. And so about two hours, wherever it is, 
south, right? From, <laughs> from, from uh, which was not obviously directly down, I know that. But um, what was interesting is that even though um, we took comfort in our headlamps and our extra batteries and each other's presence, the fact is, is that we all began to miss that sunlight. Uh, it was an adventure, there's no doubt about it. But that hole that we first entered became very important to us all. <laughs> Uh, there was a point to where everyone was like, okay, this is fun, but we still have two and a half hours to get back out of this place. And, uh, and we want to see that sunlight. Now, with that context, I want you to imagine how tragic it would have been had we denied the existence of that initial hole that we now could no longer see. And I tell you all of this, this little story about our family, to tell you that the very darkest part of John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, is six words that say, no one has ever seen God. And fully aware that our human natural tendency is to deny or ignore the existence of whatever we cannot see. John spends these verses to reveal what God did to show us his glory so that we could see him, so that we could be near him, and so that we could walk with him and by him and to him in faith. So this is what he says, starting in verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. Now, this is John the Baptist, okay? John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So what I want to do in our time is just to show you three, uh, three principles, three truths that you see within this text that sort of outline these verses for us and that prepare a bridge for us to look at three applications. So the first principle I want you to see is this, is that God is invisible to our eyes, but absolutely critical to our heart. He's invisible to our eyes, but he is absolutely critical to our heart. He says, no one has ever seen God. Now, isn't this a tragic thing? This is a truth that's really hard to swallow on those difficult days when we walk through life. And the one thing that we want more than anything else is to be near God. It's to see God. It's to hear God. All of us have been there where we're, we're in need of direction or our child is sick or perhaps our child has even died or, or, or we've lost a job or all these tragic things. And, and it seems like if there's just one thing that we could have at that moment, we just say, God, I, I, I believe, but I would fortify my belief if I could just see you, if I could just see you during this season, this day, this moment, make all the difference in the world. Some of you may be there right now. You may have shown up, so I just, maybe, maybe here, maybe this is where I'll see. And you have to ask this question, well, why can't we see? Why can't we see him? He says, no one ever has. Well, why? 
Well, the Bible tells us that God is holy. That word means set apart. It means that he's perfect in all ways, that there's a, a, there's a moral perfection in him that doesn't allow any imperfection morally to be near him. And so when we sinned and fell short of his glory, we're told in the garden that God expelled humanity from his presence so that we could not be near God. Now, the fact is some people get close, right? And perhaps the closest anyone's ever gotten to, to, to maybe seeing God, I would think would be Moses in the Old Testament. Now, for some of you, 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 you may not have read this book, this Bible, and so you may not even know who Moses is, but there's a guy named Moses, right? And God chose him, not because he was righteous. God chose him, but because of his grace. And he says, I have a task for you, and I want you to lead the, my people called Israel, who's in slavery in Egypt. I want you to lead them out in, through the wilderness, and I just want you to lead them to a promised land that I have for them. And of this Moses, referring to the closeness of the relationship between Moses and God, Exodus chapter 33 tells us that he spoke to God face to face. Now, we shouldn't assume that he's literally seeing the face of God. He's speaking of the nearness of that relationship. And the reason we know that is because a few verses later, Moses looks at God and he goes, not looks at God, he says, God, would you show me your glory? I want to see. I want to see you. To which God replies, man shall not see me and live. In other words, my holiness is so intense that not only can I not allow you into my presence, but if I show you the full amount of my holiness, you would die and you would deserve to die. You see, our sin separates us from God to the place to where our physical eyes cannot see God's spiritual being and our spiritual eyes look at Christ, and we don't even value his worth. This is what we looked at two weeks ago when we were here. The spiritual blindness of man where he says that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory and the greatness of Jesus. And so there's a, there's a separation where we cannot see God. And as a result of this, there's a lot of people that then deny the existence of God. Khrushchev, right, the, the, the former leader in the Soviet Union, when they sent him their first cosmonaut, he looked around. He's meeting with his central command, and he says these words. He goes, why are you guys clinging to God? Yuri flew into space, and he didn't see him. Now, as tragic as it is to deny our creator's existence, Moses' request to see God's glory represents an enormous human problem. Have you ever asked the question, why would Moses ask that? Let me see your glory. You say, I don't understand, Brian, I'm not following. Well, think about everything that Moses has experienced that's glorious before asking, God, may I see your glory? He's already seen and heard God speak to him from a burning bush. He's already observed the miraculous hand of God in the plagues in Egypt. He's seen God part the Red Sea. He's seen pillars of fire and cloud literally guiding Israel through the wilderness. He's seen and eaten the miraculous manna and quail and water that he's feeding all of Israel. And yet he still comes and he goes, God, can I see your glory? 
Why were these things not enough for Moses? And the reason is because they're not enough for you either. You see, pressed down upon our created conscience, our fingerprints from a divine hand that our heart deeply wants to see. So we walk through this life and we see all these miraculous fingerprints that only God's finger could do. It's like Play-Doh where you press down, right? We eat food and all of a sudden there's flavor, good flavor in the food. And your heart wants to know the hand that pressed that fingerprint down into the Play-Doh to make food taste good. You and I, we share a common desire for justice in our heart. If a man walked up and beat up a child in front of all of us, we would all say without ever having been taught by the same parents, that's wrong. Why? Because justice has been stamped upon our conscience. And so when we see injustice and when we see justice, we look at that and we see that fingerprint upon us and we want to see the finger that pressed down and made that print. It's the same thing when we see color in a sunset or beauty in creation wisdom in literature, love in relationships. Our heart is simply made to want to see the God who made the print. You say, really? Let me, let me show you one guy. I've already told you about Moses, right? But this, this guy named Moses, who's, who, it, well, he would go to this place. It was called the Tent of Meeting. Okay, it's sort of an interesting, it was literally a tent, and that's where he would meet with God. And so there was, there was the camp, and then there was the tent of meeting, and Moses would leave the camp, and he'd walk out, right? and he'd come over here, and then he would hear from God, and he would speak to God on behalf of the people. But we're told that at least every now and then, he would bring his assistant, a young man named Joshua, with him. Well, when Moses got done talking on numerous times, we're told that he would come back out, and he'd go, Joshua, it's time to go. Well, <laughs> look at what it says in Exodus thirty-three eleven. When Moses turned again into the camp, meaning it's time to leave the tent of meeting, let's go back to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know what? I think I'm just going to stay here. This is a little bit better. No, Joshua, you don't understand, man. They're, they're like serving good food tonight. Well, yeah, that's good. And I think I'm going to stay here. No, well, you know, but there's a three-on-three basketball tournament tonight. We need to get back to that. He says, no, you know what? All of these fingerprints that I see of the activities and the flavors and the colors and everything that camp has to offer. Every one of those things is simply a fingerprint of the God that I'm near right now. So I think I'll just stay here. And see, for you and for me, just like Joshua, our heart was made to find its joy in seeing God who made the print. So when John says here, those six tragic words, no one has ever seen God, he is highlighting one of the greatest human problems we have. And that is that God is invisible to our eyes, but he is absolutely critical to our heart. You need to see him to know joy. So what did God do? Well, what God did is two things. The first thing, which is the second point, if you have notes, is this, is that God directed our attention to him in the law. God directed our attention to him in the law. Now, this is not like our laws. This is not civil laws here in America. What he's saying here is the law of Moses. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about what was written down 
to guide and direct the people of God as they, as they sought to live in his world and in a relationship with him. Now, I've talked to you guys earlier about the cave down in Georgia. I want to, talk, I want to go back there just briefly. Because when we were down there, we found that somebody had gone before us. And of course, we knew this. But they left evidence. And the evidence that they left were these red arrows. I want to show you one, okay? You can see here's my wife, Tabitha. She's loving it. Bill, smile. She's a trooper, right? She has three boys. And so we do stuff like caving. And there she is, right? But if you look right above her head, there's a red arrow that we did not paint. And somebody before us, in order to help them navigate their way back up to the hole at the top of the ground, they spray painted these red arrows um, in different places of this cave. Now, the fact is, is you, you, uh, you couldn't see them. Now, you, you, like if you look at this picture and you go, wow, but that doesn't look that dark. Well, the fact is that there's a flash on the camera uh, and there's also headlamps all through this little cave, okay? And so it did light up, but it was exceptionally dark. And what you need to know about these red arrows as it relates to this point about the law is simply this. The red arrows were not the light. And there was not a single red arrow that volunteered to carry my backpack. Not one of them volunteered to push me from behind when I got tired. In fact, not one of those arrows had a light source in and of itself. You had to shine a light upon them for them to even help you. But they pointed the way to the light. And in the very same way, what it says here in our text is that when things got really dark for us, is that God gave us the law. The law was not the light. And you had to point light upon the law for it to even help you. The law has no power to push you along and the law never volunteers to carry your backpack. But just like those red arrows... The law points us to Jesus Christ, who is the light. It says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, historically, humanity has taken God's good law and we've turned it into a stepladder. We want to see God so bad. We have this law. And so what we naturally do, because we want to earn it so bad, is we put it on end. We make it a stepladder that if we climb high enough by our own effort, by doing enough good works, then maybe we'll be able to stoop over and see God. As a result of that, some people might even look at what John is saying here as a way of comparison by saying this is bad and this is good. This Moses, he gave us the law, and the law was just confining, and it didn't help you. But yay, grace and truth came with Jesus, and that's not what he's doing here. What he's saying is this, is that the one true God gave us two great gifts. One gift was simply a red arrow pointing us to the other one, and the other one was the light of the world. And this is what he's saying here. You see, John was incredibly grateful for the law, and as we go through John, we're going to find numerous times where John is literally pulling our attention back and showing us that the law was intended to point us to Jesus Christ. And I want to show you just two references right now. The first is John chapter 5, verse 46. It's on the screen if, uh, if, um, if you don't want to turn there. This is what it says. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, if you believed Moses... You would believe me, 
for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So in this reference, what we find is that John is telling us that Moses wrote in order to point our attention to Jesus Christ. And then there's another one in John chapter 6, 32 and 35. Now the context in John 6 uh, makes this uh, all the better. So what's happening is Jesus, he goes up on a mountain and we're told that 5,000 families follow him up on on this hillside. And after teaching them and loving them and we're told that he wants to feed them because it had gotten late. He looked at his disciples, so let's feed them. And they're like, we can't feed them. There's no food. We don't have enough money to do all this. And he said, okay, go ahead and sit them down. And what we're told is that he takes just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and he starts breaking it. And all of a sudden in his miraculous power, Jesus Christ literally creates food out of nothing. He's just making more and more. To the point we're told that not only all 5,000 families ate, but we're we're told that they ate so much that they got their fill. And then after he was done and after they were eating, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out with a basket each in order to collect the fragments of food that people got so full, they just threw it in the grass. A great meal. And it was free. So the next morning, when all these people got hungry again, they thought, you know what? This really works well. Tasted good. And it was free. Let's go get another meal. So they go and they go, wait, Jesus isn't here. He'd gone to the other side of the water. And so he goes, all right, let's go over there. And so all the people, they go to the other side. And Jesus looks at them. And he says, you've not come here because you believe in me. You came here because you're hungry and want breakfast. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he says, okay? He goes, you, you ate of the, of the loaves and you want more food. And they say to him, well, look, Jesus, the fact is, is you've, you've, you've been saying some really amazing things about yourself. And, and, um, and there was another guy who was on this earth. His name was Moses. And Moses fed the children of Israel, our forefathers, for 40 years. You've, you've only accomplished one dinner. So pony up and make breakfast. (laughs) And Jesus says this to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says this, I am the bread of life. Now, what's he doing there? Well, what John is referring to is he's saying that the manna in the wilderness was not the true bread. It was just a foretaste of what would come in Jesus Christ. You need to understand that when you read a sentence in the Old Testament, that sentence is pointing eventually to Jesus Christ. That's what it's there for. It's not to oppose Jesus or another way. It's a red arrow going, hey, that way, look. There's the light. And that gets us to the third point, which is, uh, which is, uh, is breathtaking. And it's this, is that God became a human so we could see him and receive grace. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Now to get the full force of what he says, the word became flesh, in particular, if you weren't here three weeks ago when we looked at verses one through five, we need to go back and look at verse one. And fortunately, we as a church family have memorized verse one, all right? So say it with me. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word Okay, stop there. I know you memorized more, but the word was God. Now, verse 17 says that word is Jesus Christ. And if you were new, what the, why he says the word is because you and I use words to describe ourselves and things that we know. Well, God used the word to describe himself, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. But notice what it says. It says the word was God. So what this means is, says is that God became flesh. And it's interesting that the word that he uses there the word flesh, he could have used more noble words to talk about humanity that, 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 were, uh, that talked about personhood or dignity of, 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 of what God made. And he chose the basest of words. It was the word sarks. It means flesh. It's like skin, and cell, and hair. Just humanity at its core. God became flesh. He didn't appear human. He became human. Now, I want you to allow your imagination just for a moment to feel the wonder of this truth so that you can worship him well. The eternal God temporarily confined himself to time. Think about that. There's references in the gospel that says, and Jesus woke up early. He's eternal. What, what is early to eternity? Well, I got up at six instead of seven. I got up early. He's eternal. He can find himself. Um, someone who has no time says, you know what? It's dinner time. And he did that while he lived on this earth. Condescending in humility to say, I'm going to follow your time. Amazing. It says that the source of life, of all of life, It says that he entered the world through the womb of a teenager. Think about this. Jesus created that womb. He created Mary. And he so humbled himself that he entered that womb in order to get to this earth. How about this one? The creator worked as a carpenter. I really like this one, right? I can see Jesus. He's probably in like eighth, ninth grade. And they give him an aptitude test. You know, let's let's find a career uh, for for each of you today. And he's like, you know what? I'm really good at making things. Uh, How about, oh, you know, you should be a carpenter. Yeah, I'll be a carpenter. That's a great idea. I make things really well. Now think of the, think of the folly. Like, Allow your imagination to really feel this, okay? This is a God who, while he was still on the earth, did not pass away his sovereign rights and authority to make anything he wanted to by thinking it or saying it. And so we're going to find stories in John where he literally regenerates human cells back to health just because he wants to. He's going to turn water into wine. He's going to just make what he wants. And this same God comes to earth, becomes a carpenter because his dad's a carpenter and he subjects himself to a hammer. 
and nails. Think about this. Like God can make an awesome bench without a saw and a hammer. And yet you can see the son of God going, here, let me get this right. I mean, can you imagine the conversations? Because there was this mysterious incarnation that it's hard for us to even imagine that Joseph, his dad, who's a carpenter by, by trade, it's his occupation. He's probably teaching. Gee, okay, now this is at a reader ruler. Can you imagine the conversation one day? Hey, Jesus, what you doing? Well, dad, I'm making a bench. You need help? No, I think I got this one. Well, okay, you can do it. Hey, Jesus, don't forget. Measure twice, cut once, you know? Jesus is perfection in a body. And he's humbling himself in these ways. The source of truth learned how to pronounce words. The source of love subjected himself to the hate of man. The hero of heaven took on flesh And we're told in verse 9 and 10 that the people didn't even receive him. So why would he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 14, he says he did this to dwell among us. To dwell among us. Now the word dwell, it literally means to set up a tent. He pitched his tent among us. Now, I have three boys. They're all in scouts. And so we've done a lot of fair share of camping. When I set up my tent on these, on these trips, I never look at it and go, you know what? This is, this is, a, this is a long-term option for living right here, right? No, no, no. I'm always like, okay, so I got 48 hours and then I'm going back to my bed, right? Two nights, I can handle this, right? That's camping to me. And so sometimes I think when we look at words like tent, set up his tent among us, we think of it in terms of the temporary nature of him being on the earth. Well, he was here just for, just for a few decades, and then he went back up to heaven where, you know, that's his, that's his abode, that's, that's his home. And that's not what he's saying here. And we know this because the same author, John, the same apostle, writes the last book of the Bible. And when you get to the last book of the Bible, the very end, John writes about the nature of eternity in heaven. And this is what John writes. Revelation 21.3, it says, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. And the word dwelling is the word tent. This is heaven. He says, and he will dwell. Literally, he will set up his tent with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, friends, look, John's point is not that God was here just for a time. His point is that God wants to be close enough so that we can see him. You see, if I move into your neighborhood and I build a house and then I surround that house with a 20-foot tall fence, it tells you a little bit about how much I want to interact with you. But if I come and I put a tent up in your backyard... There's implications there that we're going to see each other every time I have to use the restroom or every time I'm hungry. And this is what he did. This is what Jesus did. He says, he dwelt among us. Why? We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father. No one has ever seen God. The only God, though, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. You see, God set up 
his tent in our backyard so that we can see him and enjoy him forever. When you see Jesus in the pages of scripture, you see God. This is what Jesus said when he was on the earth. John 14, 9 says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. If you have heard Jesus teach, you've heard God teach. As you look at what Jesus is like, you're going to learn what God is like. Why did he do this? 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.17 says it this way, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You see, one of the last thing, we're almost done. One of the most amazing things when I look at these 18 verses that starts John, which we call a prologue. Now, the prologue simply means this is like a preview of what you're going to be learning for 21 chapters. He's just telling us the basic nuts and bolts of what we're going to learn in his book. And everything else is evidence for this. It's amazing to me that every good thing in this is being done by God, not us. And every good thing received in these 18 verses is received by us and not God. That we would become recipients of any good thing is breathtaking. It says, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Now, from his fullness, what does that mean? It means that you cannot place any more deity inside of a man than you placed within Jesus. The Apostle Paul says it like this over in Colossians 2.9. He says, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so what it says here is this, though, is that from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Literally, what it means is that old grace is perpetually being replaced by new grace. Let me ask you something. How many of you guys needed grace last Monday? All right. Yeah. How many of you needed grace on Tuesday? And aren't you glad it was new on Tuesday when you ran out on Monday? Now, the fact is you didn't run out because in Jesus, grace just continually, it's like a, it's like a power plant. It just keeps bringing it. It just keeps, you just keep receiving grace. You see, and this is what Jesus did. The red arrows of the law, they've all been replaced by the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he didn't just come. He literally dropped into the hole. He he went into that cave and he lived a righteous life as the light of the world. And then he went to a cross and died for our sin in order to satisfy God's wrath that was directed to us. And then he was buried in a grave, a grave that was made out of rock that he created. And then three days later, this Jesus rose from the dead. And he says that everyone that believes upon Jesus Christ will receive grace, literally unmerited favor. It's good that you didn't deserve and that I did not deserve. Now, this is really important. You get this here because these three verses where he talks about grace in John chapter one are the only references to grace in the whole gospel. After today, we will not literally read the word grace again. In John. So we need to think about it and relish it well this morning. And it's not that he's not overwhelmed by grace. 
He is overwhelmed by grace. You see, God wants to give us this grace. He doesn't want us to just to stalk our head with knowledge about this truth and grace. He wants you and I to be able to experience it. You see, this John, this author, he had seen, he had seen God in Jesus Christ, had received grace and wanted to bear witness. In verse 15, we're told that John the Baptist, he too had seen Jesus Christ and he had received grace. It's interesting that there's another man at the end. His name is Thomas. And in John chapter 20, Thomas, after Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to just a few disciples, those disciples come to Thomas and say, guess what? We've seen Jesus. And he says, I'm not going to believe until I see with my own hand, uh, eyes and be able to touch the marks with my own hands. I'm not going to believe. So Jesus shows up and he goes, come here, Thomas. Look. And all of a sudden, Thomas, he drops down. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, now you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe and do not see. And what he's referring to there is this, is that when we as a people today, living today, Jesus is in heaven. But there in the pages of scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to see, to see Jesus in all of his grace and all of his glory and to be able to receive his grace for ourselves, And we want you to know that just as John the author saw and received grace, just as John the Baptist saw Jesus and received grace, the people in this room who call providence their home, we're all imperfect sinners, but we have seen Jesus Christ in the pages of scripture, and we have seen grace, and we have received that grace, and we simply extend that to you. It's not ours to give, but Jesus told, tells us it's ours to extend. He's placed it in our hand. And we just say, look what he did. Look what he did. And he wants to do it in your life as well. So three quick applications from this that you don't see in the text. I think the first is this. If you have never trusted Christ, we urge you to look to Jesus Christ and believe upon him and receive him as your savior. He will forgive you of all of your sin and grace is on the way. The second thing I think is really important is that for us as a church family who already have believed, many of us already have believed, we look at this and we think, wow, that's fascinating. But what this should do is it should motivate us to see all of life as an act of worship. When we see this God doing these amazing things, it should change the way that we view tomorrow. Instead of looking at tomorrow and being absolutely blind to the presence of God in your life, a life of worship does not mean that we sing all day at work. What it means is this, is that when we look at our responsibilities and our relationships, we look at him and we look at his worth and we say, God, I simply want to be consciously aware of your presence and your authority in my life and how I'm having this conversation and how I'm filling out this, this report and how I'm going to write this email. I am doing this unto you as an act of worship. And the third thing is this is that for those of us who have already received this grace, a text like this should inspire us that if the king of glory, who was rich, became poor, so that we who were poor could become rich, is that it is incumbent upon us to recognize what we have received and to know that Jesus also extended this to other people who have not heard the gospel, who don't know this good news. And so they're living in that cave. 
and they don't know, but you know. And he's called us to take what we know and say, you know what? I don't get it all right, but here's my savior. This is what he's done and he'll do it for you. And so as a church family, let's be praying for opportunities this week to share the gospel with people. Let's be considering the nations and be praying for people to come to faith that this God could give them grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for Jesus. How in the world, how in the world that went down is still just beyond words that I can formulate. We thank you, Jesus, that it's true that you did come to rescue us. And Father, even now, Lord, as we continue to worship you just in a little different way, instead of listening, now responding and singing to you and seeking to give what's already yours in an offering, we pray, God, that you would receive these things as an offering of trust and faith and that you would take them and that you would do great things for the glory of Jesus Christ with them. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.